Third, prayer is appointed by God for our seeking from Him the things which we are in need of. But here a difficulty may present itself to those who have read carefully the previous chapters of this book. If God has foreordained before the foundation of the world everything which happens in time, what is the use of prayer? If it is true that of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, Romans 11.36, then why pray? Ere replying directly to these queries, it should be pointed out how that there is just as much reason to ask, what is the use of me coming to God and telling Him what He already knows? Wherein is the use of me spreading before Him my need, seeing He already is acquainted with it? As there is to object, what is the use of praying for anything when everything has been ordained beforehand by God? Prayer is not for the purpose of informing God, as if he were ignorant, the Savior expressly declared, For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him, Matthew 8, 6. But it is to acknowledge he does know what we are in need of. Prayer is not appointed for the furnishing of God with the knowledge of what we need, but it is designed as a confession to him of our sense of the need. In this, as in everything, God's thoughts are not ours. God requires that His gifts should be sought for. He designs to be honored by our asking, just as He is to be thanked by us after He has bestowed His blessing. However, the question still returns on us. If God be the predestinator of everything that comes to pass, and the regulator of all events, then is not prayer a profitless exercise? A sufficient answer to this question is that God bids us to pray. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5:17. And again, men ought always to pray, Luke 18:1. And further, Scripture declares that the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5:15 and 16. While the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect example in all things, was preeminently a man of prayer. Thus, it is evident that prayer is neither meaningless nor valueless, but still this does not remove the difficulty nor answer the question with which we started out. What then is the relationship between God's sovereignty and Christian prayer? First of all, we would say with emphasis that prayer is not intended to change God's purpose, nor is it to move Him to form fresh purposes. God has decreed that certain events shall come to pass, but He has also decreed that these events shall come to pass through the means He has appointed for their accomplishment. God has elected certain ones to be saved, but He has also decreed that these ones shall be saved through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, then, is one of the appointed means for the working out of the eternal counsel of the Lord, and prayer is another. God has decreed the means as well as the end, and among the means is prayer. Even the prayers of His people are included in His eternal decrees. Therefore, instead of prayers being in vain, they are among the means through which God exercises His decrees. If indeed all things happen by a blind chance or a fatal necessity, prayers in that case could be of no moral efficacy and of no use. But, says Haldane, since they are regulated by the direction of divine wisdom, prayers have a place in the order of events. 
that prayers for the execution of the very things decreed by God are not meaningless is clearly taught in the Scriptures. Elijah knew that God was about to give rain, but that did not prevent him from at once betaking himself to prayer, James 5:17 and 18. Daniel understood by the writings of the prophets that the captivity was to last but 70 years, yet when these 70 years were almost ended, we are told that he set his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications, that is, by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel 9, 2 and 3. God told the prophet Jeremiah, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. But instead of adding, There is therefore no need for you to supplicate me for these things, God said, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, Jeremiah 29.12. Once more, in Ezekiel 36, we read of the explicit, positive, and unconditional promises which God has made concerning the future restoration of Israel. Yet, in verse 37 of this same chapter, we are told, Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel, to do it for them. Here, then, is the design of prayer. Not that God's will may be altered, but that it may be accomplished in His own good time and way. It is because God has promised certain things that we can ask for them with the full assurance of faith. It is God's purpose that His will shall be brought about by His own appointed means, and that He may do His people good upon His own terms, and that is, by the means and terms of entreaty and supplication. Did not the Son of God know for certain that after His death and resurrection He would be exalted by the Father? Assuredly He did. Yet we find Him asking for this very thing. O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. John 17:5. Did not he know that none of his people could perish, yet he besought the Father to keep them? John 17:11. Finally, it should be said that God's will is immutable and cannot be altered by our cryings. When the mind of God is not toward a people to do them good, it cannot be turned to them by the most fervent and important prayers of those who have the greatest interest in him. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth. Jeremiah 15, 1. The prayers of Moses to enter the promised land is a parallel case. Our views respecting prayer need to be revised and brought into harmony with the teaching of Scripture on the subject. The prevailing idea seems to be that I come to God and ask Him for something that I want, and I expect Him to give me that which I have asked. But this is a most dishonoring and degrading conception. The popular belief reduces God to a servant, our servant, doing our bidding, performing our pleasure, granting our desires. No, prayer is a coming to God telling him my need, committing my way unto the Lord, and leaving him to deal with it as seemeth him best. This makes my will subject to his, instead of, as in the former case, seeking to bring his will into subjection to mine. No prayer is pleasing to God unless the Spirit actuating it is, Not my will but thine be done. 
when God bestows blessings on a praying people, it is not for the sake of their prayers, as if he was inclined and turned by them. It is but for his own sake, and of his own sovereign will and pleasure. Should it be said, to what purpose then is prayer? It is answered, this is the way and means God has appointed for the communication of blessing of his goodness to his people. For though he has purposed, provided, and promised them, yet he will be sought unto to give them, and it is a duty and privilege to ask. When they are blessed with a spirit of prayer, it forebodes well, and looks as if God intended to bestow the good things asked, which should be asked always with submission to the will of God, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. And that a quote from John Gill. The distinction just noted above is of great practical importance for our peace of heart. Perhaps the one thing that exercises Christians as much as anything else is that of unanswered prayers. They have asked God for something so far as they are able to judge. They have asked in faith, believing that they would receive that for which they had supplicated the Lord. And they have asked earnestly and repeatedly, but the answer has not come. The result is that, in many cases, faith in the efficacy of prayer becomes weakened until hope gives way to despair, and the closet is altogether neglected. Is it not so? Now, will it surprise our readers when we say that every real prayer of faith that has ever been offered to God has been answered? Yet we unhesitatingly affirm it. But in saying this, we must refer back to our definition of prayer. Let us repeat it. Prayer is a coming to God, telling Him my need, or the need of others, committing my way unto the Lord, and then leaving Him to deal with the case as seemeth Him best. This leaves God to answer the prayer in whatever way He sees fit, and often His answer may be the very opposite of what would be most acceptable to the flesh, yet if we have really left our need in His hands, it will be His answer nevertheless. Let us look at two examples. In John 11, we read of the sickness of Lazarus. The Lord loved him, but he was absent from Bethany. The sisters sent a messenger unto the Lord, acquainting him of their brother's condition, and to note particularly how their appeal was worded, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. That was all. They did not ask him to heal Lazarus. They did not request him to hasten at once to Bethany. They simply spread their need before him, committed the case into his hands, and left him to act as he deemed best. And what was our Lord's reply? Did he respond to their appeal and answer their mute requests? Certainly he did, though not perhaps in the way they had hoped. He answered by abiding two days still in the same place where he was, John 11:6, and allowing Lazarus to die. But in this instance, that was not all. Later he journeyed to Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. Our purpose in referring here to this case is to illustrate the proper attitude for the believer to take before God in our hour of need. The next example will emphasize, rather, God's method of responding to his needy child. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul had been accorded an unheard of privilege. He had been transported into paradise. His ears have listened to, and his eyes have gazed upon that which no other mortal had heard or seen this side of death. The wondrous revelation was more than the apostle could endure. He was in danger of becoming puffed up by his extraordinary experience. Therefore, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, was sent to buffet him, lest he be exalted above measure. And the apostle spreads his need before the Lord. He thrice beseeches him that this thorn in the flesh should be removed. And what was his prayer answered? 
Assuredly, though not in the manner he had desired, the thorn was not removed, but grace was given to bear it. The burden was not lifted, but strength was vouchsafed to carry it. Does someone object that it is our privilege to do more than spread our need before God? Are we reminded that God has, as it were, given us a blank check and invited us to fill it in? Is it said that the promises of God are all-inclusive and that we may ask God for what we will? If so, we must call attention to the fact that it is necessary to compare Scripture with Scripture if we are to learn the full mind of God on any subject, and that as this is done, we discover God has qualified the promises given to praying souls by saying, If we ask anything, 1 John 5:14, If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Real prayer is communion with God, so that there will be common thoughts between His mind and ours. What is needed is for Him to fill our hearts with His thoughts, and then His desires will become our desires flowing back to Him. Here, then, is the meeting place between God's sovereignty and Christian prayer. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we do not so ask, He does not hear us. As saith the Apostle James, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye might consume it upon your lusts or desires. James 4.3 But did not the Lord Jesus tell His disciples, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it you. John 16.23 He did. But this promise does not give praying souls carte blanche. These words of our Lord are in perfect accord with those of the Apostle John. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. What is it to ask in the name of Christ? Surely it is very much more than a prayer formula, the mere concluding of our supplications with the words in the name of Christ. To apply to God for anything in the name of Christ, it must needs be in keeping with what Christ is. To ask God in the name of Christ is as though Christ himself were asking. We can only ask God for what Christ would ask. To ask in the name of Christ is, therefore, to set aside our own wills, accepting God's. Let us now amplify our definition of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude. An attitude of dependency. Dependency upon God. Prayer is a confession of creature weakness, yea, of helplessness. Prayer is the acknowledgement of our need and the spreading of it before God. We do not say that this is all there is in prayer. It is not. But it is the essential, the primary ingredient in prayer. We freely admit that we are quite unable to give a complete definition of prayer within the compass of a brief sentence or in any number of words. Prayer is both an attitude and an act, a human act, and yet there is the divine element in it too, and it is that which makes an exhaustive analysis impossible as well as impious to attempt. But... Admitting this, we do insist again that prayer is fundamentally an attitude of dependency upon God. Therefore, prayer is the very opposite of dictating to God. Because prayer is an attitude of dependency, the one who really prays is submissive, submissive to the divine will. And submission to the divine will means that we are content for the Lord to supply our need according to the dictates of His own sovereign pleasure. 
And hence it is that we say, every prayer that is offered to God in this spirit is sure of meeting with an answer or response from him. <clears throat> Here then is the reply to our opening question, and the scriptural solution to the seeming difficulty. <clears throat> prayer is not the requesting of God to alter his purpose or for him to form a new one, Prayer is the taking of an attitude of dependency upon God, the spreading of our need before Him, the asking for those things which are in accordance with His will, and therefore there is nothing whatever inconsistent between divine sovereignty and Christian prayer. In closing this chapter, we would utter a word of caution to safeguard the reader against drawing a false conclusion from what has been said. We have not here sought to epitomize the whole teaching of Scripture on the subject of prayer, nor have we even attempted to discuss in general the problem of prayer. Instead, we have confined ourselves more or less to a consideration of the relationship between God's sovereignty and Christian prayer. What we have written is intended chiefly as a protest against much of the modern teaching which so stresses the human element in prayer that the divine side is almost certainly entirely lost sight of. In Jeremiah 10.23 we are told, It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Also see Proverbs 16.9 And yet in many of his prayers man impiously presumes to direct the Lord as to his way and to what he ought to do, even implying that if only man had the direction of the affairs of the world and of the church, man would soon have things very different from what they are. This cannot be denied, for anyone with any spiritual discernment at all cannot fail to detect this spirit in many of our modern prayer meetings where the flesh holds sway. How slow we all are to learn the lesson that the haughty creature needs to be brought down to his knees and humbled into the dust. And this is where the very act of prayer is intended to put us. But man, in his usual perversity, turns the footstool into a throne from whence he would fain direct the Almighty as to what he ought to do, giving the onlooker the impression that if God had half the compassion that those who pray, supposedly, have, all would quickly be put right. Such is the arrogance of the old nature, even in a child of God. Our main purpose in this chapter has been to emphasize the need for submitting in prayer our wills to God's. But it must also be added that prayer is much more than a pious exercise and far otherwise than a mechanical performance. Prayer is indeed a divinely appointed means whereby we may obtain from God the things we ask, providing we ask for those things which are in accord with His will. These pages will have been penned in vain unless they lead both writer and reader to cry with a deeper earnestness than heretofore, Lord, teach us to pray. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 10. Our Attitude Toward God's Sovereignty. Matthew 11:26. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. In the present chapter we shall consider, somewhat briefly, the practical application to ourselves of the great truth which we have pondered in its various ramifications in earlier pages. In chapter 12 we shall deal more in detail with the value of this doctrine, but here we would confine ourselves in chapter 10 to a definition of what ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God. 
Every truth that is revealed to us in God's Word is there not only for our information, but also for our inspiration. The Bible has been given to us not to gratify an idle curiosity, but to edify the souls of its readers. The sovereignty of God is something more than an abstract principle which explains the rationale of the divine government. It is designed as a motive for godly fear. It is made known to us for the promotion of righteous living. It is revealed in order to bring into subjection our rebellious hearts. A true recognition of God's sovereignty humbles as nothing else does or can humble, and brings the heart into lowly submission before God, causing us to relinquish our own self-will and making us delight in the perception and performance of the divine will. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean very much more than the exercise of God's governmental power, though, of course, that is included in the expression, as we have remarked in an earlier chapter, the sovereignty of God means the Godhood of God. In its fullest and deepest meaning, the title of this book signifies the character and being of the one whose pleasure is performed and whose will is executed. To truly recognize the sovereignty of God is therefore to gaze upon the sovereign himself. It is to come into the presence of the august majesty on high. It is to have a sight of the thrice holy God in his excellent glory. The effects of such a sight may be learned from those scriptures which describe the experience of different ones who obtained a view of the Lord God. Mark the experience of Job, the one of whom the Lord himself said, There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Job chapter 1 verse 8. At the close of the book which bears his name, we are shown Job in the divine presence. And how does he carry himself when brought face to face with Jehovah? Hear what he says. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, 5 and 6. Thus a sight of God, God revealed in awesome majesty, caused Job to abhor himself, and not only so, but to abase himself before the Almighty. Take note of Isaiah. In the sixth chapter of his prophecy, a scene is brought before us which has few equals even in Scripture. The prophet beholds the Lord upon the throne, a throne high and lifted up. Above this throne stood the seraphim with veiled faces, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What is the effect of this sight upon the prophet? We read, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6.5 A sight of the divine King humbled Isaiah into the dust, bringing him as it did to a realization of his own nothingness. Once more, Look at the prophet Daniel. Toward the close of his life, this man of God beheld the Lord in theophanic manifestation. He appeared to his servant in human form, clothed in linen, and with loins girded with fine gold, symbolic of holiness and divine glory. We read that his body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. 
Daniel then tells the effect this vision had upon him and those who were with him. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength yet. Heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. Daniel 10, 6-9 Once more, then, we are shown that to obtain a sight of the sovereign God is for creature strength to wither up, and results in man being humbled in the dust before his Maker. What then ought to be our attitude toward the Supreme Sovereign? We reply, one of godly fear. Why is it that today the masses are so utterly unconcerned about spiritual and eternal things and that they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? Why is it that even on the battlefields multitudes were so indifferent during World War I to their soul's welfare? Why is it that defiance of heaven is becoming more open, more blatant, more daring? The answer is, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, why is it that the authority of the Scriptures has been lowered so sadly of late? Why is it that even among those who profess to be the Lord's people, there is so real little subjection to His Word, and that its precepts are so lightly esteemed and so readily set aside? Ah, what needs to be stressed today is that God is a God to be feared. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Happy the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty, that has had a vision of God's awful greatness, His ineffable holiness, His perfect righteousness, His irresistible power, His sovereign grace. Does someone say, but it is only for the unsaved, those outside of Christ who need to fear God? Then the sufficient answer is that the saved, those who are in Christ, are admonished to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Time was when it was the general custom to speak of a believer as a God-fearing man, that such an appellation has become nearly extinct, only serves to show whither we have drifted. Nevertheless, it still stands written, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Psalm 103.13 When we speak of godly fear, of course, we do not mean a servile fear, such as prevails among the heathen in connection with their gods. No, we mean that spirit which Jehovah is pledged to bless, that spirit to which the prophet referred when he said, To this man will I, the Lord, look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word, Isaiah 66, too. It was this the apostle had in view when he wrote, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, First Peter 2.17, and nothing will foster this godly fear like a recognition of the sovereign majesty of God. What ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God? We answer again, secondly, one of implicit obedience. 
A sight of God leads to a realization of our littleness and nothingness, and issues in a sense of dependency and of casting ourselves upon God. Or again, a view of the divine majesty promotes the spirit of godly fear, and this, in turn, begets an obedient walk. Here, then, is the divine antidote for the evil nature of our hearts. Naturally, man is filled with a sense of his own importance, with his greatness and self-sufficiency, in a word, with pride and rebellion. But, as we remark, the great corrective is to behold the mighty God, for this alone will really humble him. Man will glory either in himself or in God. Man will live either to serve and please himself, or he will seek to serve and please the Lord. None can serve two masters. Irreverence begets disobedience. Said the haughty monarch of Egypt, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Exodus 5, 2. To Pharaoh, the god of the Hebrews, was merely a god, one among many, a powerless entity who needed not to be feared or served. How sadly mistaken he was, and how bitterly he had to pay for his mistake, he soon discovered. But what we are here seeking to emphasize is that Pharaoh's defiant spirit was the fruit of irreverence, and this irreverence was the consequence of his ignorance of the majesty and authority of the divine being. Now, if irreverence begets disobedience, True reverence will produce and promote obedience. To realize that the Holy Scriptures are a revelation from the Most High, communicating to us His mind and defining for us His will, is the first step toward practical godliness. To recognize that the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, are the words of God, and that the Bible's precepts are the precepts of the Almighty, will lead us to see what an awful thing it is to despise and ignore them, to receive the Bible as addressed to our own souls, given to us by the Creator Himself, will cause us to cry with the psalmist, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, order my steps in thy word. Psalm 119.36 and 133. Once the sovereignty of the author of the word is apprehended, it will no longer be a matter of picking and choosing from the precepts and statutes of that word, selecting those which meet with our approval, but it will be seen that nothing less than an unqualified and wholehearted submission becomes the creature. What ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God? We answer once more, thirdly, one of entire resignation. A true recognition of God's sovereignty will exclude all murmuring. This is self-evident, yet the thought deserves to be dwelt upon. It is natural to murmur against afflictions and losses. It is natural to complain when we are deprived of those things upon which we had set our hearts. We are apt to regard our possessions as ours unconditionally. We feel that when we have prosecuted our plans with prudence and diligence that we are entitled to success, that when by dint of hard work we have accumulated a competence, we deserve to keep and enjoy it that when we are surrounded by a happy family, no power may lawfully enter the charmed circle and strike down a loved one, and if in any of these cases disappointment, bankruptcy, death actually comes, the perverted instinct of the human heart is to cry out against God. But in the one who by grace has recognized God's sovereignty, 
such murmuring is silenced, and instead there is a bowing to the divine will and an acknowledgment that he has not afflicted us as sorely as we deserve. A true recognition of God's sovereignty will avow God's perfect right to do with us as he wills. The one who bows to the pleasure of the Almighty will acknowledge his absolute right to do with us as seemeth him good. If he chooses to send poverty, sickness, domestic bereavements, even while the heart is bleeding at every pore, it will say, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Often there will be a struggle, for the carnal mind remains in the believer to the end of his earthly pilgrimage. But though there may be a conflict within his breast, nevertheless to the one who has really yielded himself to this blessed truth, there will presently be heard that voice saying, as of old it said to the turbulent sea of Galilee, Peace, be still and the tempestuous flood within will be quieted and subdued. The soul will lift a tearful but confident eye to heaven and say, Thy will be done. A striking illustration of a soul bowing to the sovereign will of God is furnished by the history of Eli, the high priest of Israel. In 1 Samuel 3, we learn how God revealed to the young child Samuel that he was about to slay Eli's two sons for their wickedness. And on the morrow, Samuel communicates this message to the aged priest. It is difficult to conceive of more appalling intelligence for the heart of a pious parent. The announcement that his child is going to be stricken down by sudden death is, under any circumstances, a great trial to any father. But to learn that his two sons, in the prime of their manhood and utterly unprepared to die, were to be cut off by a divine judgment must have been overwhelming. Yet what was the effect upon Eli when he learned from Samuel the tragic tidings? What reply did he make when he heard the awful news? And he said, 1 Samuel 3.18, It is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. Sublime resignation, wonderful submission, lovely exemplification of the power of divine grace to control the strongest affections of the human heart and subdue the rebellious will bringing it into unrepining acquiescence to the sovereign pleasure of Jehovah. Another example equally striking is seen in the life of Job. As is well known, Job was one that feared God and eschewed evil. If ever there was one who might reasonably expect divine providence to smile upon him, we speak as a man, it was Job. Yet how fared it with him? For a time the lines fell unto him in pleasant places. The Lord filled his quiver by giving him seven sons and three daughters. He prospered him in, in his temporal affairs until he owned great possessions. But of a sudden the sun of life was hidden behind dark clouds. In a single day Job lost not only his flocks and herds, but his sons and daughters as well. News arrived that his cattle had been carried off by robbers and his children slain by a cyclone. And how did he receive this intelligence? Hearken to Job's words. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. He bowed to the sovereign will of Jehovah. He traced his afflictions back to their first cause. He looked behind the Sabaeans who had stolen his cattle and beyond the winds that had destroyed his children and saw the hand of God. But not only did Job recognize God's sovereignty, he rejoiced in it, too. To the words, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away, Job adds, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Again we say, sweet submission, sublime resignation. 
A true recognition of God's sovereignty causes us to hold our every plan in abeyance to God's will. The writer well recalls an incident which occurred in England years ago. Queen Victoria was dead, and the date for the coronation of her eldest son, Edward, had been set for April 1902. In all the announcements which were sent out, two little letters were omitted. D. V. Deo volente, God willing. Plans were made and all arrangements completed for the most imposing celebrations that England had ever witnessed. Kings and emperors from all parts of the earth had received invitations to attend the royal ceremony, but the prince's proclamations were printed and displayed, but so far as the writer is aware, the letters D.V., Deo Volente, God Willing, were not found on a single one of them. A most imposing program had been arranged, and the late Queen's eldest son was to be crowned Edward VII at Westminster Abbey at a certain hour on a fixed day. And then God intervened, and all man's plans were frustrated. A still, small voice was heard to say, You have reckoned without me. And Prince Edward was stricken down with appendicitis and his coronation postponed for months. As remarked, a true recognition of God's sovereignty causes us to hold our plans in abeyance to God's will. It makes us recognize that the divine potter has absolute power over the clay and molds it according to his own imperial pleasure. It causes us to heed that admonition, now, alas, so generally disregarded, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor, that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Yes, it is to the Lord's will we must bow. It is for Him to say where I shall live, whether in America or Africa. It is for Him to determine under what circumstances I shall live, whether amid wealth or poverty, whether in health or sickness. It is for Him to say how long I shall live, whether I shall be cut down in youth like the flower of the field, or whether I shall continue for threescore and ten years. To really learn this lesson is by grace to attain unto a high form in the school of God. And even when we think we have learnt it, we discover again and again that we have to relearn it. Fourthly, our attitude towards God's sovereignty, one of deep thankfulness and joy. The heart's apprehension of this most blessed truth of the sovereignty of God produces something far different than a sullen bowing to the inevitable. The philosophy of this perishing world knows nothing better than to make the best of a bad job, but with the Christian it should be far otherwise. Not only should the recognition of God's supremacy beget within us godly fear, implicit obedience, and entire resignation, but it should cause us to say with the psalmist, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Does not the Apostle say, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Ephesians 5.20 Ah, it is at this point the state of our souls is so often put to the test. Alas, there is so much self-will in each of us. When things go as we wish them, we appear to be very grateful to God. But what of those occasions when things go contrary to our plans and desires? 
We take it for granted when the real Christian takes a train journey that upon reaching his destination he devoutly returns thanks to God, which of course argues that God controls everything, otherwise we ought to thank the engine driver, the stoker, the signalman, etc. Or, if in business at the close of a good week gratitude is expressed unto the giver of every good temporal and of every perfect spiritual gift, which again argues that God directs all customers to your shop. So far, so good. Such examples occasion no difficulty. But imagine the opposite. Suppose your train or plane was delayed for hours. Did you fret and fume? Suppose another train or plane crashed and you're injured, you're dead. Suppose you have had a poor week in business or that lightning struck your shop and set it on fire or that burglars broke in and rifled it. Then what? Do you see the hand of God in these things? Take the case of Job once more. When loss after loss came his way, what did Job do? Bemoan his bad luck? Curse the robbers? Murmur against God? No. He bowed before him in worship. Ah, dear reader, there is no real rest for your poor heart until you learn to see the hand of God in everything. But for that, faith must be in constant exercise. And what is faith? A blind credulity? A fatalistic acquiescence? No, far from it. Faith is a resting on the sure word of the living God. And therefore says... We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. And therefore faith will give thanks always for all things. Operative faith will rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. We turn now to mark how this recognition of God's sovereignty, which is expressed in godly fear, implicit obedience, entire resignation, and deep thankfulness and joy was supremely and perfectly exemplified by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In all things, the Lord Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in His steps. But is this true in connection with the first point made above? Are the words godly fear ever linked with Jesus' peerless name? Remembering that godly fear signifies not a servile terror, but rather a filial subjection and reverence, and remembering, too, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, would it not rather be strange if no mention at all were made of godly fear in connection with the one who was wisdom incarnate? What a wonderful and precious word is that of Hebrews 5, 7. Who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard in that he feared. What was it but godly fear which caused the Lord Jesus to be subject under Mary and Joseph in the days of his childhood? Was it not godly fear, a filial subjection to and reverence for God that we see displayed when we read, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Luke 4.16. Was it not godly fear which caused the incarnate Son of God to say when tempted by Satan to fall down and worship him, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Was it not godly fear which moved him to say to the cleansed leper, Go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded? Matthew 8, 4. 
But why multiply illustrations? Note how Old Testament prophecy also declares that the Spirit of the Lord should rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, in the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. How perfect was the obedience that the Lord Jesus offered to God the Father. And in reflecting upon this, let us not lose sight of that wondrous grace which caused him who was in the very form of God to stoop so low as to take upon him the form of a servant and thus be brought into the place where obedience was becoming. As the perfect servant, he yielded complete obedience to his Father. How absolute and entire that obedience was, we may learn from the words, He became obedient unto death even the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8. That this was a conscious and intelligent obedience is clear from his own language, quote, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father, John 10.17 and 18. And what shall we say of the absolute resignation of the Son to the Father's will? What? But between them there was entire oneness of accord. Said he, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 6:38. And how fully he substantiated that claim, all know who have attentively followed his path, as marked out in the Scriptures. Behold him in Gethsemane, the bitter cup, held in the Father's hand, is presented to his view. Mark well the Lord's attitude. Learn of him who was meek and lowly in heart. Remember that there in the Garden of Gethsemane we see the Word become flesh, a perfect man. His body is quivering at every nerve in contemplation of the physical sufferings which await him. His holy and sensitive nature is shrinking from the horrible indignities which shall be heaped upon him. His heart is breaking at the awful reproach which is before him. His spirit is greatly troubled as he foresees the terrible conflict with the powers of darkness. And above all, and supremely, the soul of Jesus is filled with horror at the thought of being separated from God himself. Thus and there he pours out his soul to the Father, and with strong crying and tears he sheds, as it were, great drops of blood. And now observe and listen, still the beating of thy heart, and hearken to the words which fall from his blessed lips. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Luke 22:42 Here is submission personified here is resignation to the pleasure of a sovereign god superlatively exemplified and he has left us an example that we should follow in his steps he who was god became man and was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin to show us how to wear our creature nature above we ask what shall we say of Christ's absolute resignation to the Father's will? We answer further this, that here, as everywhere, Jesus was unique, peerless. In all things, He has the preeminence. In the Lord Jesus, there was no rebellious will to be broken. In His heart, there was nothing to be subdued. 
Was not this one reason why, in the language of prophecy, he said, I am a worm and no man, Psalm 22, 6. A worm has no power of resistance. It was because in him there was no resistance that he could say, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish the work, John 4.34. Yea, it was because he was in perfect accord with the Father in all things that he said, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Psalm 40, verse 8. Note the last clause here, and behold his matchless excellency. God has to put his laws into our minds and write them in our hearts. See Hebrews 8.10. But his law was already in Christ's heart. What a beautiful and striking illustration of Christ's thankfulness and joy is found in Matthew 11. There we behold first the failure in the faith of his forerunner, John the Baptist, verses 22 and 23. Next we learn of the discontent of the people satisfied neither with Christ's joyous message nor with John's solemn one, Matthew 11:16 through 23. We have the non-repentance of those favored cities in which our Lord's mightiest works were done, verses 21 through 24, and then we read, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Note the parallel passage in Luke 11 opens by saying, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee. Ah, here was submission in its purest form. Here was one by which the worlds were made. Yet, in the days of his humiliation and in the face of his rejection, thankfully and joyously bowing to the will of the Lord of heaven and earth. What ought to be our attitude towards God's sovereignty? Finally, and fifthly, one of adoring worship. It has been well said that true worship is based upon recognized greatness, and greatness is superlatively seen in sovereignty, and at no other footstool will men really worship. In the presence of the divine king upon his throne, even the seraphim veil their faces. Divine sovereignty is not the sovereignty of a tyrannical despot, but the exercised pleasure of one who is infinitely wise and good. Because God is infinitely wise, he cannot err. And because he is infinitely righteous, he will not do wrong. Here, then, is the preciousness of this truth. The mere fact itself that God's will is irresistible and irreversible fills me with fear. But once I realize that God wills only that which is good my heart is made to rejoice. Here then is the final answer to the question of this chapter, what ought to be our attitude toward the sovereignty of God? The becoming attitude for us to take is that of godly fear, implicit obedience and unreserved resignation and submission. But not only so, the recognition of the sovereignty of God and the realization that the sovereign himself is my father ought to overwhelm the heart and cause me to bow before him in worshiping and adoring him. And at all times I must say, even so, Father, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. We conclude with an example which well illustrates our meaning. Some hundreds of years ago, the saintly Madame Guyon, after ten years spent in a dungeon lying far below the surface of the ground, lit only by a candle at mealtimes, she wrote these words, a little bird I am, 
shut from the fields of air, yet in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because, my God, it pleases thee. Not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long, and he whom most I love to please doth listen to my song. He caught and bound my wandering wing, but still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round, abroad I cannot fly, but though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of the soul. Ah, it is good to soar these bolts and bars above, to him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love, and in thy mighty will to find the joy, the freedom of the mind. Madame Guyon, hundreds of years ago. Continuing in the Sovereignty of God, chapter 11. Objections and difficulties. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? Ezekiel 18.25 A convenient point has been reached when we may now examine more definitely some of the difficulties encountered and the objections which might be advanced against what we have written in previous pages. The author deemed it better to reserve these for a separate chapter rather than deal with them as he went along, requiring, as that would have done, the breaking of the course of thought and destroying the strict unity of each chapter, or else encumbering our pages with numerous and lengthy footnotes. That there are difficulties involved in an attempt to set forth the truth of God's sovereignty is readily acknowledged. The hardest thing of all, perhaps, is to maintain the balance of truth. It is largely a matter of perspective. That God is sovereign is explicitly declared in Scripture, that man is a responsible creature is also expressly affirmed in Holy Writ. To define the relationship of these two truths, to fix the dividing line betwixt them, to show exactly where they meet, to exhibit the perfect consistency of the one with the other, is the weightiest task of all. Many have openly declared that it is impossible for the finite mind to harmonize them. Others tell us it is not necessary or even wise to attempt it, but... As we have remarked in an earlier chapter, it seems to us more honoring to God to seek in His Word the solution to every problem. What is impossible to man is possible with God, and while we grant that the finite mind is limited in its reach, yet we remember that the Scriptures are given to us that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished. And if we approach their study in the spirit of humility and of expectancy, then, according to our faith, will it be unto us. As remarked above, the hardest task in this connection is to preserve the balance of truth while insisting on both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the creature. To some of our readers it may appear that in pressing the sovereignty of God to the lengths we have, man is reduced to a mere puppet. Hence, to guard against this, they would modify their definitions and the statements relating to God's sovereignty, and thus seek to blunt the keen edge of what is so offensive to the carnal mind. Others, while refusing to weigh the evidence that we have adduced in support of our assertions, may raise objections which to their minds are sufficient to dispose of the whole subject. We would not waste time in the effort to refute objections made in a carping and contentious spirit, but we are desirous of meeting fairly the difficulties experienced by those who are anxious to obtain a fuller knowledge of the truth. 
Not that we deem ourselves able to give a satisfactory and final answer to every question that might be asked. Like the reader, the writer knows but in part and sees through a glass darkly. All that we can do is examine these difficulties in the light we now have in dependence upon the Spirit of God that we may follow on to know the Lord better in His holy scriptures. We propose now to retrace our steps and pursue the same order of thought as that followed up to this point. As a part of our definition of God's sovereignty, we affirmed, quote, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite, unquote. To put it now in its strongest form, we insist that God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which He decreed in eternity. In proof of this assertion, we appeal to the following scriptures. Psalm 115, 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Daniel 4.35 And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? Romans 11.36 For of him... And through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. The above declarations are so plain and positive that any comments of ours upon them would simply be darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Such express statements as those just quoted are so sweeping and so dogmatic that all controversy concerning the subject of which they treat ought forever to be at an end. Yet, rather than receive them at their face value, every device of carnal ingenuity is resorted to, so as to neutralize their force. For example, it has been asked, If what we see in the world today is but the outworking of God's eternal purpose, if God's counsel is now being accomplished, then why did our Lord teach His disciples to pray, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven? Is it not a clear implication from these words that God's will is not now being done on earth? The answer is very simple. The emphatic word in the above clause is as. God's will is being done on earth today. If it is not, then our earth is not subject to God's rule. And if it is not subject to His rule, then He is not, as Scripture proclaims Him to be, the Lord of all the earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See also Joshua 3.13. But God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven consciously and joyfully? How is it done on earth for the most part unconsciously and sullenly? In heaven the angels perform the bidding of their Creator intelligently and gladly. But on earth the unsaved among men accomplish His will blindly and in ignorance. 
As we have said in earlier pages, when Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord Jesus, and when Pontius Pilate sentenced him to be crucified, they had no conscious intention of fulfilling God's decrees, yet, nevertheless unknown to themselves, they did so. But again it has been objected, if everything that happens on earth is the fulfilling of the Almighty's pleasure, if God has foreordained before the foundation of the world everything which comes to pass in human history, then why do we read in Genesis 6, 6, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Does not this language intimate that the antediluvians had followed a course which their maker had not marked out for them, and that in view of the fact they had corrupted their way upon the earth, the Lord regretted that he had ever brought such a creature into existence? Ere drawing such a conclusion, let us note what is involved in such an inference. If the words, it repented the Lord that he had made man, are regarded in an absolute sense, then God's omniscience would be denied. For in such a case, the course followed by man must have been unforeseen by God in the day that he created him. Therefore, it must be evident to every reverent soul that this language bears some other meaning. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.